Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are. We have a few things we're going to talk about today, um, and we have a, a special guest joining us to talk about one of those stories. We are going to talk about uh, sort of one of what may be one of the big legislative issues of this year, that is, if there is any more legislating this year, which brings us back to the question of whether or not there is going to be any major modifications of the rules of the filibuster. Because as long as we still have the filibuster, you have a de facto 90%. Uh, <laughs> my brain's not functioning this morning. Uh, 60%, 60 votes necessary to pass any legislation. Uh, and as long as that's the case, nothing else is going to pass. Because not only are all the main uh, legislative items uh, ones that... Uh, basically, you know, more or less all Republicans oppose, but there is a broader partisan and ideological uh, imperative not to support anything, to force everything either to, to, to make sure that nothing passes at all, or make sure that things only pass with Democratic votes, which sets things up in a certain way uh, for the uh, 2022 uh, midterm, which is about 18, 18, 20 months off, 18 months off, I guess. So uh, the big uh, legislative question is this is what what's usually called H.R. 1, which I guess is S1 in the Senate, which is a big voting rights bill. Now, that's different from bringing back another Voting Rights Act or, you know, kind of upgrading the Voting Rights Act. But it is a, a big omnibus bill, which basically has the goal of blocking all of these efforts, which we're seeing around the country in Republican legislatures, to to put in a whole new list of restrictions on voting. You can't vote by mail anymore. You can't vote early anymore. You can't vote on Sundays anymore. There's more restrictions on, uh, you know, how easy it is to register to vote. All the kind of things that we that that TPM has been, uh, you know, following for years, but but now is is coming back with greater force because a because President Trump spent a whole year basically putting the sort of the, the vote fraud propaganda and scare tactics, which have been an increasingly prominent part of Republican politics and basically making it central to Republican politics. And uh, also Republicans seeing that if they want to hold on to power, they need fewer people to vote, especially in swing states. If it's in uh, South Dakota or Utah, everybody can vote. That's no problem. Uh, but if it's in Florida or Georgia or Arizona, 
Pennsylvania, basically anywhere where things are, you know, can go either way. You need to have as few people voting as possible. We're also going to talk about this situation in uh, Tennessee where uh, basically the Republican Party is 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 kind of um, how can I how can I put it? Uh making this the sort of the central point of their, you know, uh, party agenda, defending a guy named Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a both a very a particularly vicious, but also uh, incredibly able Civil War general. But what he's mostly known about is what he did after the Civil War, which was be the founder of the KKK. So and and uh, Republicans in Tennessee, where he's from, uh, that's the big thing now, defending Nathan Bedford Forrest. And I guess like statue of him or I don't know, you know, put him on put him on basic uh, iconography and stuff like that. So uh, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. You can go to uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM, get 25% off your first order. Uh, It's great stuff. Uh, You can uh, buy it. You you buy it in different ways. You buy in bottles, buy it in like a kind of like a box uh, that you can dispense it from, or you can buy these pouches that you can make it yourself. So there's all sorts of different kinds of ways. Uh, Everybody at TPM lives on the stuff. It's great stuff. Remember, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, sponsor of our podcast, and you can order it at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can get a big discount in your first order with the promo code TPM, and obviously you can buy it in you know grocery stores and. All, all sorts of places you buy uh, buy things you eat and drink. So, uh, uh, Dave and Kate, uh, what, are, what are we talking about this week? Hey, Josh. Well, we should first uh, welcome our colleague Matt Shuham to the podcast. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. It's been a minute since you've joined us, so I'm, gl- I'm glad you're here to, to uh, talk to us today. And Kate, wanted to start with you. As Josh was mentioning, you know, a big topic of our coverage this morning is a Senate rules hearing on S-1, which is, like Josh mentioned, the Senate version of H.R. 1, the big pro-democracy bill. And obviously it boosts voting rights and, you know, same-day voting registration and all the kind of things Josh talked about. It also has some campaign finance reform uh, measures in there, trying to get money out of politics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the hearing this morning is... I guess unusual, or there's a bit of a different approach to it in that the Senate majority and minority leaders, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, have showed up to make make remarks. That's not something that usually happens in in a kind of a committee level hearing. So could you catch us up a little bit this morning on what what kind of the main themes are, how Democrats are are positioning themselves with regard to the bill and how Republicans are kind of on defense or pushing back, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, Democrats are positioning the bill as the most important thing on their legislative agenda. And, you know, against the backdrop, the backdrop of this pretty unprecedented nationwide sweep of restrictive voting bills from GOP legislatures, um, this package that they already intended to, you know, go ahead with um, has taken on a lot more importance, particularly around the filibuster, because, you know, can't be done through reconciliation and they're not going to get 10 Republicans to come along. So it's kind of become, uh, you know, the the site of much speculation about if this is going to be the thing that catalyzes um, of reforming the filibuster. And then for Republicans, 
this hearing is kind of the first time that we're hearing the the coordinated response to it and that pushback is kind of it's coming in a few ways one of which Roy Blunt, who's the ranking member, has really been um, pounding this nail that most of these restrictive bills won't become laws anyway, so they don't matter. Um, and Schumer kind of accidentally helped him with that uh, when he accidentally said that Georgia had passed a bill restricting early voting on Sundays, which um, engendered a lot of backlash, especially because of the Souls to the Polls initiative, which is a, a you know, get out the vote movement uh, centered on predominantly black churches in Georgia. And that has not passed. Uh, Republican lawmakers have backed off that particular restriction, which Blunt then pounced upon to say, see, most of these things won't become laws. You don't have to worry about it. Um, their other thing is uh, saying, this came from Ted Cruz, uh, that it'll inspire widespread voter fraud and that it'll keep Democrats in power for 100 years. Um, and then the other piece is the classic states' rights, don't tread on me, how dare you federalize elections, leave it to the states, they're the best ones to know. Um, so that's kind of their battery of responses to it. Um, and then the piece of this is a, that's a little bit more complicated that we were discussing briefly before we came on the air is that the bill does have some logistical issues with it, things like conflicting timelines within the legislation itself. Um, you know, different requirements for voting equipment that hasn't been developed yet. Um, one section that kind of allows for lawsuits, you know, if, you're, if your state isn't meeting the standards or the timelines fast enough, uh, which some election administrators have, you know, voiced concerns about that it's going to flood them in expensive lawsuits if they're not able to meet the high standards of this bill. And the thing that's a bit weird about it is some of that stuff is not that hard to fix, you know, especially things like the conflicting timeline piece. Um, but it just it hasn't been done. And, you know, there's some speculation, well, maybe that'll just be done on the committee level. But it's, it's just kind of weird that we've gotten to this point that this legislation is seemingly, you know, gaining momentum, possibly to be the battleground site of the filibuster fight, and that it still has these weaknesses in it that Republicans during this committee are pretty much, you know, going ham on, you know, kind of portraying this as this is going to be a nightmare. It's not it's not ready for prime time, I think, is how Mitch McConnell described it, you know, that it's going to cause all these problems, some of which seem like they could have been fixed relatively easily, perhaps if there had been more, uh, you know, cooperation with election administration officials or I'm not really sure uh, what you know what the holdup is here. Well, is is part of is is part of it though that I mean obviously there's been a huge amount going on in the last uh, you know two months. Um, I I don't know. I mean obviously they could have done some legwork on it uh, before you know before the inauguration and so forth. Um, but it, I mean it's funny those kind of things. You know, you kind of work those out. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't doesn't as you said doesn't doesn't seem that hard. And I, I kind of wonder. Um, I mean, I know we you know we had a, a, a briefing, an inside briefing, I guess uh, maybe a week ago, where we talked about this with a law professor, uh, Justin Levitt, uh, kind of about the logistics and like one other issue that we talked about with him was the the part of this that's really a big focus of mine is redistricting 
that it basically uh, it's complicated what it does, but it basically really kind of cracks down on partisan gerrymandering, which obviously is 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 a big deal. And um, one of those logistical issues there is, you know, can you really uh, you know, change every state's system for redistricting in time for an election that's in 18 months, which is, that's, that's, that's a challenge um, for, you know, a, a number of levels. And what he was saying, I, I guess one version of the bill basically puts the new standards in place for this cycle, but doesn't you won't have to have commissions until the next until you know for another in 10 years and and the standards basically being a kind of a set of rules like you can't do a partisan gerrymander you can't have a you know kind of a a a, a, uh, districts that are obviously meant to favor one party another can't do this can't do that but you can still follow the same procedure so like maybe the legislature can still do it but they have to follow this set of rules seems like those things are are fixable and what really matters is you know uh does joe manchin support the bill and does he support some kind of filibuster reform to make the bill possible like right. so what's what, what i mean let, I was ahead, it, the thing that's weird about it to me is you know the house passed this ages ago you know during the trump administration and i i don't think you're wrong that you know we're we're out of time for these fixes to be ironed out but i don't know if i was the democrats and i was going to make this bill kind of the locus of all of our focus and potentially on doing the filibuster and blah 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 like wouldn't you, i don't know wouldn't you try to have this stuff a little bit more ironed out before it just provides such open season for republicans to kind of go after it and and get some messaging rooted in some legitimate complaints about you know this is going right. to unleash disaster you know so i mean part of it is it's just a an optics messaging thing as well as kind of the substantive changes um well set, setting aside the filibuster issue yeah and and mansion and all that kind of stuff do we know, because I saw something kind of contradictory about this in one of the morning newsletters today. Do we know where Manchin is on the bill itself? Um, it's funny that you should say that because I've been monitoring the, the Hill pool, um, waiting for someone to catch Manchin on mm. this. And he apparently told reporters that he has an op-ed. This came in literally two minutes ago. He has an op-ed coming out today on our HR1 um, a lot of good things in it, but he thinks we should be doing it in a bipartisan way. Um, upset about the lack of trust in voting. Uh, I think there's enough good that we can all come together. That's what we should work on. Huh. Yeah, so there you have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's... Uh... It's funny because there was uh, one of those people who has at least been, you know, filibuster curious, uh, Angus King, who, you know, de facto Democrat from Maine, even though he's an independent caucus with Democrats. He had a statement out this morning saying basically, you know, if it's going to come down to whether we have a democracy or whether we, you know, kind of hold on to some Senate rule, I'm going to go with democracy. Um, so that's a statement about, about the filibuster. I mean, my sense has been that Manchin is fairly in favor of most of the stuff and that the issue is, you know, bipartisanship, filibuster, blah, 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 which, as I think we all know, is... 
these are contradictory points. You're not going to get a lot of Republicans. I mean, Republicans all want to make it harder to vote. So you're going to have a hard time coming up with a compromise bill to make it easier to vote with people who want to make it harder to vote. Um, but I, but I've been curious. I mean, obviously when we were talking about the minimum wage, it was a pretty big deal that he doesn't want to actually have the minimum wage go to $15. He's comfortable with it going to 11, quite apart from filibusters and whatever. So Democrats don't even have 50 votes for that thing. And so I've been trying to get a sense of like, do they basically have 50 votes for this as, you know, on on the policy itself, which is pretty important to figure out before you get into like a bunch of theoreticals about whether or not you're going to modify the filibuster or, or whatever. So I'm, I mean, I guess we'll find out in this, in this uh, op-ed, whatever the <laughs> hell that's going to be. I um, mean, if I had to guess, you know, and this is so dangerous to be in the prediction business for myself, but if I had to guess, I would say it's going to be kind of along the lines of King's thing. There's a lot of good in here that we can all agree on. We all want to have a democracy, even though that's like not really true. And so we're going to, we're going to give it, the old college try. And this is um like part of me is that it thinks that this muddying of the waters that's happening right now was inevitable because we never thought that the filibuster was going to be blown up or reformed before Republicans obstructed anything. You know, kind right. of the theme of this whole thing is we're going to take some bills to the floor, watch Republicans stymie absolutely everything. And then you have kind of the clear narrative for people of you know, we try to work with them. They wouldn't work with us. We have no other choice. So I, you know, I do wonder how much of this kind of tiptoeing around right now is just, you know, with King, with Manchin is all part of the same thing, which is just, we're going to need to bring some bills up and have them be stopped before there's going to be final, you know, fi- definite movement on this. Cause I mean, there, there does seem to me, and again, I, I I've mentioned this in a few posts we're in this situation where we're just kind of watching the surface of the ocean, but we know there's a lot of stuff happening out of view, particularly negotiations within the Democratic caucus about the future of the filibuster and potential reforms of the filibuster. And so we are um, we're forced to just kind of rely on kind of hints and signs and, you know, smirks that people make when they're being interviewed and stuff like that. But my sense, at least, is that there's momentum for doing something on the filibuster, that something's happening, something substantial is happening. Uh, you know, maybe not. It's Again, we don't know, right? They're being very, very close to the vest about this. Um, but it's But it certainly seems like, certainly seems like it is. I mean, I'll just mention one point, probably, you know, give uh, people reason to be mad at me. But to the extent that there's three kind of parts of this bill, there's making sure it's easy to vote and making sure it's, you can't make it harder to vote. That basic thing. All of those, you know, you can register same day, you can vote by mail, blah, blah, blah. Okay, there's that. Then there's redistricting. Then there's campaign finance. To me, the first two are the big ones that are important. The third one, yeah, that's great, but I, I'm I'm less, I'm much less focused on that. And I don't know if that is if 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 that's something that had to get scuttled, I wouldn't be as 
uh, wouldn't be as big a deal to me. And the reason is, A, I don't think that is where the core issues are right now in preserving our democracy. But the other point is the Supreme Court has already opened up a a, a, a deep furrow of, of jurisprudence about how you can't put any restrictions on campaign finance because of what they, you know, what they claim is First Amendment grounds. So in this, in this briefing we did for our listeners, in this briefing we did last week, one of the things that came through pretty clearly is that the constitutional basis for the federal government to say, okay, we've got some new rules for how we're going to run elections. You know, it's hard to put anything past this Supreme Court but the constitutional, the constitution is so clear that those things are probably pretty safe. Campaign finance reform, I, I sort of assume those things get overruled by the Supreme Court anyway. So kind of like, okay, you know, let's not let's not let's not uh, uh, lose the bill over something that's not even gonna not even gonna stick. Right. Well, one question I had, Kate, is. It struck me as pretty rich when you were saying, you know, don't tread on our state rights and things like that and keep the federal government out of our kind of election policies. Well, of course, we saw how that went um, after the November election. Have Democrats made that argument, kind of throwing it back at Republicans, um, raising issue about meddling in, you know, election results? And Matt, I'm curious if you've seen any evidence of this too, but Kate, has that been, has that come up either in the hearing or just in the kind of their messaging about it? Uh, it's come up a lot less than I thought it would. Um, Klobuchar had a section of her comments. She's the chair of the rules committee um, where she was going kind of state by state, picking out some of the most egregious examples of these uh, voter restrictive bills. And then it kind of crescendoed on the, you know, we've seen the danger that um, spreading voter fraud myths can have, January 6th, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's interesting, two of the GOP witnesses that are there today, uh, Mac uh, Warner, who's the Secretary of State in West Virginia, and Todd Royka, I think I pronounce it, is the Attorney General of Indiana. Both of them signed on to that Ken Paxton lawsuit out of Texas that sought to overthrow all the election results from all the battleground states. So, I mean, you got that like lingering in the background here. Um, but Democrats haven't brought it up too much. And it is kind of interesting because that's a, a theme that is in common with the uh, committee proceedings specifically based on the January 6th insurrection so far, which is just there is there seems to be some kind of discomfort with um, kind of talking about that when you have people on the Republicans on the committee who either didn't denounce the election fraud conspiracy or propped it up. Um, and that's just something that they've kind of steered clear of right now. But I mean, there are also such fundamental divides as McConnell saying nothing is happening to restrict voting. So you kind of already have this right. alternate reality to deal with without delving into the alternate realities of a couple months ago. It's kind of like an awkward family dinner conversation where it's like, you know, just don't mention that one thing that uh, everyone is, you know, the elephant in the room kind of thing. Right. And I think also just practically, it's like this bill would not stop Trump from right. spreading election fraud conspiracy. So it's only really, you know, tangentially related. Yeah. Matt, what about you? I mean, what's your what's your sense of kind of, I don't know, how the politics play out or or how Democrats have presented their argument for it and anything like that? 
Yeah, actually, the the question you just mentioned uh, about the hypocrisy of it, I, ha- I have heard Democrats bring that up in a postal service hearing. It was um, Jim Jordan saying all this concern about the mail was a charade. It was all part of a predicate for laying the groundwork for mail-in balloting. He was saying the concern about COVID was a, was a charade for mail-in balloting and all of the chaos and confusion that Democrats wanted. And then Jerry Connolly said, I didn't vote to overturn an election and I will not be lectured by people who did. That's the last time I really remember. I mean, obviously there's lots of hearings that I haven't personally watched, so I'm sure they brought it up. But um, the last one that I saw personally, um, to the larger politics of it, it was interesting um, what Senator Blunt said about, you know, all oh, these these bills at the state level aren't going to pass. Um, the article that I have worked on on this was with Tierney in Arizona, and we followed um, the voting rights, the, the restriction legislation in that state. And one thing that people brought up to us over and over again is that not only do these bills have a shot, but that the rate of people introducing these bills was actually part of the strategy, or at least it seemed like part of a strategy. Um, Tierney spoke to the recorder, the top election official in Pima County, who actually had to hire a legislative tracker because her office couldn't keep up with the number of voting restriction bills that were coming up in the Arizona legislature. They, they literally couldn't keep track of them. And their job as recorders at this point is to get in touch with the legislators and say, here's how this is going to affect us. And they couldn't do it because there were so many bills they couldn't keep up with them. At this point, a lot of the crazy ones have gotten sort of stalled in committee, but the stuff that people, that, that a specific group of Republicans in Arizona have been pushing for years that stuff now has the support of more mainstream Republicans. So stuff like purging uh, the permanent early voting list if you don't participate in two cycles, stuff like requiring proof of identity in your in your envelope, in your mail-in ballot. So like <laughs> scanning your ID or including an electric bill in, in, your, in your envelope. Um, all sorts of stuff like that does have a chance. And I just saw that yesterday the Arizona governor, uh, Doug Ducey, sort of he didn't say outright which ones he would sign, but he did say, hey, you know, I'm going to give these a look. And this was the same Doug Ducey who stood up to Trump and said, you know, our, we have a, a long, proud history of voting by mail. And now that the Trump is out of office and there's less attention on governors like him, there is a, a serious shot of more mainstream Republicans who may have stood up to this legislation in the past, giving it uh, more of a hearing. Well, and I think, you know, related to your point, Part of the reason that some of those crazier restrictions are dying in committee, I think, is because they attract more backlash and especially more media attention. Like the the Sunday early voting in Georgia got a huge attention, you know, because it kind of neatly fits in the narrative of really high black turnout helping Democrats this last cycle and now going after, you know, a a way of voting that is specifically used by the black uh, community in Georgia. And, you know, there was all this backlash. Now suddenly Republicans are kind of giving up on that and moving on to, as you say, Matt, maybe like the less sensational voter restrictions, you know, things like adding in proof of your ID maybe doesn't even sound that crazy to someone who, you know, isn't particularly well versed in the issues. And then it's only when you dig into the nitty gritty of you know, how many people have a means of scanning their ID, not to mention, you know, the proper ID itself, et cetera, et cetera, that it, you know, you start to see the real damage, but that throwing the spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks tactic seems to be a really good way to muddy the water so much that, you know, reporters can't focus on every single measure and then it more easily can squeak through. 
in Arizona, it was um, some legislator, I forget who, introduced uh, a bill that would allow the legis- the the uh, member- members of the legislature to uh, investigate and affirm the results of the election, not the Secretary of State, not elections officials. So they, the legislature would have the final say. So that one stalled in committee, but the one to include your electric bill and your ID and your vote by mail envelope, that one is very much alive. So there was a lot of immediate attention paid to the crazy stuff, but the stuff that four and eight years ago we would have considered really radical um, does does have a shot. Yeah. one. I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, I guess, really the big news of the last week or so, which are these two mass shooting events, one in the Atlanta, Georgia area, another in, um, gosh, I'm sorry, Boulder, Colorado. I was blanking for just a second. Uh, this came after, you know, a relative pause in mass shooting violence during 2020, you know, during the worst of the pandemic. And it's, unfortunately, it's like we're back to the kind of old normal, in a sense, uh, with two of these horrific events in the last week. The House passed background checks, uh, kind of expanded background checks legislation, I want to say a couple weeks ago. Kate, I'm curious, like, I mean, I I hate even saying this, but it feels like if meaningful gun control legislation was going to happen in Congress, it would have already happened by now. I don't see any reason why these particular shootings, as horrible and tragic and awful as they are, moves the needle. But once again, we kind of find ourselves in this situation where there seems to be renewed, you know, there's renewed interest in gun control measures. Does it seem like, is there any chance that plays into the filibuster debate or, you know, Manchin being who he is, having a campaign ad, I guess in 2010, shooting the cap and trade bill with a long gun, um, maybe says it all. But I'm curious if you have any sense of how that plays out. Right. I mean, why have the filibuster fight over a bill you don't have 50 votes for, you know, and there is simply not 50 votes for these, uh, you know, pretty common sense gun uh, bills. You know, Manchin has already said that he's against the background one. Um, because he doesn't want there to have to be a background check when you sell a gun, you know, in a, in a more informal setting to like a neighbor or a friend or something. Um, so, I mean, that one's pretty much dead in the water. And yeah, to your point, TT, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> the most regularly depressing part of American politics as we like hear these stories of people, sometimes children, getting murdered in large groups and then we have the thoughts and prayer cycle. I mean, this time we have Schumer kind of saying on the floor, this time's going to be different. I'm going to bring these bills up for a vote. But especially, especially while we have the filibuster, absolutely no chance. But honestly, even probably without the filibuster, these, at least these two bills, Manchin has come out and said that he wouldn't support them. So it would have to be something even more watered down than this. Um, you know, I was kind of interested that Chris Murphy did a TV hit where he said, on one of the networks, you know, don't count us out just because nothing happened before doesn't mean nothing's going to happen this time, which, you That's know, inspiring. Well, <laughs> well, it does make you kind of wonder, like, why, why come out and say that? You know, it does give you pause for a second. Like, does he know something we don't know? But I mean, just the, the sheer numbers and the fact that Manchin isn't even being coy about not supporting these two. Um, and I mean, we, there's also the bipartisan bill that is him and uh, Pat Toomey, which is a background check bill um, that Republicans have filibustered for years. So I don't know why there would be any change to that now. So yeah, I don't know. It looks like these, these things, like all that came before have no future at all in the Senate. So 
well, on that happy note, maybe you, uh, <laughs> we can shift over to another uh, joyful story out of Tennessee that, Matt, you've been covering. And, and, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on to talk to us. As Josh mentioned in the intro, there is a debate kind of underway over this bust of uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest in the state capitol. Is that where it's displayed at the moment? And there's been protests kind of around it. You know, there's been many successful efforts at tearing down and dismantling Confederate statues and kind of public displays of iconography and things like that. And um, if I'm getting the story correct, is that I think a commission successively voted to remove this statue, right, that has been the subject of protests and controversy and all that. And the Republicans in the state legislature are saying, wait a minute, not so fast, and are now basically working to disband the commission altogether that voted to remove the statue. Is that, do I have the kind of basic contours of the story right? Can you tell our listeners sort of what what they should know about it if this isn't quite on their radar yet? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we first took note when that happened, when the bill to replace this historical commission uh, that voted to remove this bust after 43 years, when that came up in a committee uh, last week, we said, hold on, <laughs> like, uh, it, the, the point being that these Confederate memorials um, have legislative power and political power. And this was sort of the perfect moment to examine that, which is, you know, the commission itself that voted to remove this bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, you know, first Grand Wizard of the KKK, Confederate general, slave trader, um, the Fort Pelham massacre, you know, killed hundreds of troops, many of them black who were surrendering. Um, the vote to remove him was the result of years of legislative posturing and back and forth. And basically, um, Tennessee created the most difficult system possible for removing Confederate monuments. This vote achieved that. It followed the process. And then Republicans in the state say, we're going to replace the commission, and also the monument belongs to us in the legislature. It doesn't belong to the state historical commission. And also, you didn't dot your T's and cross your I's. And so I've spoken to a lot of uh, Democrats in the legislature and activists and NAACP officials who say it's part of a, a familiar pattern of doing everything right and by the rules to get these uh, monuments removed, and then the legislature taking back that control and saying, yes, you won technically, but we have the political power in this state. Is there any is there any talk about Republicans having any concern about you know, I mean there there's with with stuff like I mean Forrest is a particularly like toxic Confederate general. I mean, you know, I, I think they're all plenty toxic enough, but you know, at least there's this sort of myth built up around Robert E. Lee is this, you know, the great gentleman and all this kind of nonsense, which is basically false. But, you know, uh, uh, Forrest is like the worst of the worst. I guess they just, they run the state and they kind of don't care. Yeah. I mean, there is sort of a mythology built up around Forrest in Tennessee, um, particularly the fact that he was not sort of a, a high-born Confederate general. He sort of worked his way through the ranks. He was known as being sort of a scrappy fighter, um, someone who made do with the fighters he had and sort of picked off Union fighters where he could. And that has become sort of part of his aura in the state of like uh, 
this uh, up and coming general who who wasn't given a fair shot. There's a strain of, of history of the of, of the Civil War that said if only the Confederate leadership had given Nathan Bedford Forrest more power, more troops, more control, then they would have come out on top or come out better than they did. So I think there is that historical aspect of 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 his legacy. But but no, I mean, there are some attempts to say, well, he wasn't really the first grand wizard debates, you know, <laughs> accounts vary. But I mean, that's pretty established fact. So there's not really a lot of running away from the facts here. So the debate becomes, well, we shouldn't erase history. We shouldn't move around our history. The, the cold truth in this instance is that it was installed in 1978. Like a lot of Confederate monuments, this was post-Civil Rights Act. Uh, as soon as it was installed... Uh, two things happened. One, protests occurred immediately. Um, the first person I think that was arrested for protesting this literally took a bullwhip and cracked the statue and said, that's what you know Nathan Bedford Forrest did to us. Um, so protest and also a Klan press conference happened in front of that uh, bust in the 70s. So as soon as it was installed, people understood it to be uh, a, you know, a monument to not only forest, but also to slavery and and segregation. Um, So even on that point, it's a weak one. Is there a a backstory about 1978? Because most, I mean, there is a a, a ton of stuff in the 1950s and the early 1960s when that battle was was being engaged and and you know a lot of the southern the uh southern state flags that incorporated the uh confederate flag stars and bars um th- that stuff was like in the 1950s but 1978 is really late i i i had no idea I, what's what's the story there i i'm not sure this but well for it was uh 1973ish early 70s is when the idea was basically passed and legislature was it was basically a collaboration between the sons of confederate veterans and the legislature i'm not sure the specific impetus for it being installed um i mean i i spoke to a lawyer for the uh nathan bedford forrest's descendants who has um, been involved in lawsuits over over memorials to him who tried to sort of play off its connection to uh the civil rights era um, but it was over the course of that entire decade of the seventies that it sort of, uh, huh. took shape. That, that's straight. I mean, that's not the, that really is not the standard thing. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, backlash politics and resistance, but focused on bus. Like there wasn't the symbolic stuff, this, the, you know, the kind of statues and, and changing the flags and stuff that there's, I, I can't think of much of any of that, that, that goes back to the, to the, certainly the seventies, late seventies. That's, that's strange. And it stands in contrast to another, the other most notable, uh, forest statue in the state was in Memphis. It was a a statue of him on horseback in a park in the middle of the city. That was a a lot older, I think probably, uh, early 20th century. I'm not sure the exact year. Yeah. A lot of the statues go back to, you know, first two or three decades of the 20th century, especially the first two. So that, that fits the model. And that, that actually is a, is a good example of how the political power has played out in the state. The city of Memphis wanted to get rid of this statue. The historical commission at that point was stacked against them. So they said, okay, we're going to sell this park to a nonprofit that was owned by a county commissioner. That nonprofit was not subject to the historical commission because it wasn't state property. They got rid of the statues. The next year, 
the legislature passed a law preventing that sort of transfer again. So it just goes to show the sort of back and forth that, that, that happens over these statues. So they have been successful in some instances of removing uh, the forest bus. Another example is the state no longer has to, or the governor no longer has to sign a proclamation for Nathan Bedford Forest's birthday, but it still is an observed day in the state, Nathan Bedford Forest Day. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he's very present. The, the argument that you would need to sort of educate Tennesseans about who this is uh, just falls flat because he, he's everywhere. You can't walk a block without seeing something about him. Matt, do you have a sense of um, where does it go next? Um, you know, what are the next kind of pressure points in the story or what are you looking looking at going forward? What are the kind of you know, questions on your mind and, and what our readers should be looking out for going forward too? Yeah, so there's a, a bigger picture and sort of a more um, granular picture. The bigger picture, or the, the, let's start with the granular first, is this bill is still working its way through the legislature to replace the historic commission. They, they were, depending on the amendments and how it works out, there probably also be some language affecting the actual vote to remove it. So it might also, you know, just get back, sent back to the starting line. Uh, the lieutenant governor and the speaker of the house have written to the attorney general saying, did they really follow all the rules right? The attorney general could weigh in. On the other hand, the governor who has called for this thing to be removed has uh, some sway in the state. And, and if he put his foot down and said this thing has to go, it would it would carry some weight. He hasn't done that yet. He has sent sort of his legislative aides to these hearings and spoken about historical commissions specifically, um, but not about the bust. If this were to proceed as it would, normally there's around uh, two, three months of sort of a cooling off period where people have the right to challenge the rulings of the historical commission in court. So that's technically what we're in now, is basically that, that, that legal challenge period. If that were to, to go on without any interruptions, it would eventually be transferred from uh, the Capitol to the state historical museum, which is a few blocks down the street. Um, so we're sort of using this as as sort of a, uh, a microscope to, to look at the racism in the legislature and in the state and at the sort of political power that he holds. Um, so at every step of this, you just have people sort of telling on themselves. Do you know if, um, does the bus need to be displayed in that museum or is it up to the historical commission to kind of decide what to do with it, put it in storage or, or whatever? Do you have a sense of that? I, um, it is, it would be up to the museum um, there's a chance it would be put in storage, uh, just because of, you know, space and humidity and all the things that you need for historic preservation. I will say from what I've seen, it's not as if museum curators are, uh, have an animus towards Nathan Bedford Forrest. And the fact that this was, uh, installed in 1978 is a historical event in itself. And I think worth, uh, reflecting on and uh, preserving. Um, Bedford Forrest's uh, family attorney did <laughs> did uh, tell me he was worried about it ending up in storage, but I, I think that's more of a, a, a rhetorical point rather than um, an argument that will hold a lot of sway, sway with the commission, because as I said, 25 to 1, very lopsided as far as these votes go. It, it's been a real slog over the years to have the kind of support that it had uh, last week. And have, have any U.S members of Congress or U.S. senators from Tennessee gotten into this story at all? Have there been any, you know, reactions or kind of like um, interventions from them at all or just strictly kind of a local issue? 
Yeah, I think it's been local. I mean, you know, the fact is this is a, a bill to replace a historical commission for a vote on a bust and it's still in committee. And so it's a bit in the weeds. The reason that we took to it is uh, the, the the things that are people that, that people are saying now in, in, in defense of this bill to gut the historic commission say a lot about the bust itself. I think if this goes on and if it gets to a point where they have uh, defeated this effort to get it out of the, out of the state capitol, we might see some uh, people weighing in. Billy, as I said, the Republican governor, uh, weighed in last year that he wanted this thing gone, and he's not alone among Republicans. But the legislature is farther right, for sure, than uh, the National Republican Party. And that, and that is saying something when it comes to Confederate monuments. It's also, it's it, it's, it's striking that, that this this is a, a, we see this pattern, we see it in the voting rights stuff, where um, not just the national GOP, but even statewide GOPs, some of this stuff's a little too much for them. Um, they may have, uh, you know, political ambitions beyond their state. Uh, it's always a little more challenging to run statewide, even in, even in a fairly conservative state. You still got a, you know, a lot of a lot of people. Not everybody's identical the way it often is in a in a uh, congressional district. And uh, often what gets states' attention is business, right? It kind of, you, 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 and you, you, you're starting to see that in Georgia with the, vo- you know, with the voting rights stuff. Um, corporate America has, gets a little, little antsy with this kind of stuff. Um, but legislatures are really, you know, mix of sort of uh, geographical concentration of of democrats and cities gerrymandering and stuff that legislatures are kind of don't need to worry about a lot about public opinion so you you see that you know you see that pattern um a lot so that doesn't you know it's not 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 terribly surprising one actually one interesting part of the bill to replace this historic commission is that it not, in addition to splitting it up uh, who chooses the membership between the governor the house speaker and the senate speaker is that it specifies uh, the geographic diversity not racial diversity not qualifications of historical degrees but that you have to have one person each from each quadrant of the state and also a lot of sort of bureaucratic stuff that that would uh, draw out the process but trying to isolate the historic commission from that sort of pressure from business, from national politics, and bring it back to the local sort of Tennessee political values that uh, I, I don't doubt that there are lots of people in the state that want the bust there. But you're right, it, it, there is a tension between the national and, and the state interests, at least the, the politics of those. Yeah. All right. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us. And you should definitely keep us posted as you continue to cover this story. And I feel like just a reminder for our listeners, this is the type of story that if you see something like this happening in your backyard. It doesn't have to be Tennessee. It could be in Florida. It could be in New York, California, whatever. Drop us a line. Um, we always love hearing what's going on in your backyard, basically. So talk at Talking Points Memo is the email address if you need a reminder. But I think that um, it's probably a good place to leave it this week. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can uh, buy some at uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. You can get a uh, 25% discount on your first order. So uh, give it a try. It's great stuff. And just uh, one last reminder, I guess, for our listeners, we are having a virtual event tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. It's all about accountability for Trump. I think I mentioned it last week, but I might have 
implied that it was sooner than it actually is tomorrow, March 25th, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Get to talk to Josh, get to talk to Kate, lots of good stuff, um, lots of great guests. So if you're a, a TPM member, definitely join us. And if you're not, sign up today. Cool. All right. Talk to you, talk to you guys next folks. week. Thanks, Bye. guys. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.